Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to Anne McElhaney. Now, some of you will recognize her name because she is the author of the very chilling book, Gosnell, the untold story of America's most prolific serial killer. Now, Dr. Kermit Gosnell's name will be familiar to many of my listeners because most of my listeners, I presume, are pro-life or very anti-abortion. And Dr. Kermit Gosnell was, of course, an abortionist, a late-term abortionist who perfected the practice of what is known as snipping. Now, snipping is exactly what it sounds like. He would deliver the babies of women who came to his horrifying clinic at 4801 Lancaster in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He would flip those children over in one smooth motion, and then he would drive a pair of scissors into the backs of their necks and snip their spinal cords so that they would suffocate to death. He did this to hundreds, likely thousands of children in his clinic. He severed their hands and their feet and kept them in jars as trophies, some of which he kept in his office. Others were abandoned in the basement of the clinic. Some were put in bags and stuffed in freezers. There was body parts discovered in the refrigerator when his clinic was finally raided. Dr. Kermit Gosnell was the most prolific serial killer, as the subtitle of their book suggests, but not, unfortunately, the most notorious. Because Dr. Gosnell was an abortionist, of course, he was ignored by the mainstream press until they were forced to cover the story by a concerted campaign led by a couple of pro-lifers. And that's because to discuss the crimes of Gosnell is to discuss Gosnell's victims. And how is a pro-choice abortion supporter supposed to express outrage at the activities of a man who delivered babies, stabbed them in the neck, and killed them when they would have supported the precise same action done on the exact same baby only a few moments earlier? In fact, the proximity of Kermit Gosnell's killing to the womb made people profoundly uncomfortable because it revealed the fundamental schizophrenia of abortion. Now, this is a story I knew quite a bit about because I followed the story as it was unfolding, and I actually drove with my colleague Stephanie Gray down to Philadelphia during the closing arguments of the trial in 2013. We sat in the courtroom with journalists and other pro-lifers and, and observers, and we saw the blood-spattered stirrups and the chairs he had utilized to incapacitate his victims we saw massive photographs set up at the front of the court showing the backs of babies heads with bloody holes in their necks we saw the filthy equipment he used in his clinic and we heard the entire closing argument made by the prosecutor against dr kermit gosnell who sat in front of the courtroom with this bizarre and incredibly creepy smile on his face i remember when he was led into the courtroom he turned to pro-lifers sitting in the front row and, and gave this sort of serene smile as if he might actually be glad to see them. And it was just a very surreal experience because here was a man on trial, seemed totally unperturbed, and the prosecutor was making what very much sounded like a pro-life rally speech. He was yelling, he was shouting, he was saying, we need justice for these babies. But of course, he was only seeking justice for the handful of children that they had evidence for that he had killed outside the womb, not, of course, for the thousands and thousands of babies he'd killed inside the womb. In fact, if he had done all those abortions, quote-unquote, properly, he would not have been charged with murder. Again, this is the schizophrenia of America's abortion regime. And so 
This story now has been told and retold. There's the brilliant book, Gosnell, by Anne McElhaney and Phelan McElhear. I'm probably butchering his name, so apologies in advance. This was also produced into a, a true-life film called Gosnell. It's a screenplay by Andrew Claven of The Daily Wire, incredibly powerful, very chilling. You know, discusses especially the story of a clinic worker who took a photograph of a baby a really big baby that had been aborted. She took a photograph when she was asked why she took the photo. She said, I just wanted someone to know that he'd been here for a while. Gosnell had no qualms about killing babies that late. He actually joked at, upon seeing one large baby corpse that the child was big enough to walk him to the bus stop. So there was this film that came out, and now there's a true crime podcast. And Anne joins me to talk about this podcast, why she thinks this podcast about Gosnell is important nine years after he was convicted and sent to prison and why all of you should consider giving it a listen. Here's that conversation. So maybe just to introduce yourself to our listeners, because many people will know who you are and some will not. Maybe give us an idea of, of how an Irish journalist ended up covering the story of an American serial killer abortionist. Yeah, it certainly was kind of out of my wheelhouse. We had just made a documentary about fracking called Frack Nation, and my husband and, uh, and partner in crime <laughs> was traveling around Pennsylvania having screenings of the, the fracking documentary and heard about a court case that was going on in Philadelphia. And, you know, like any decent journalist thought he'd go down and see what was, this, what was going on. And, you know, they had this huge courtroom set aside for this court case about this doctor and and the, the large courtroom was basically empty and my husband who covered you know the troubles in northern ireland has done you know a huge amount of journalism over the years was listening to the worst testimony he had ever heard the most shocking testimony with photographs of dead babies being shown to the jury and people who were witnesses to the crimes of kermit gosnell speaking in graphic detail of what they had witnessed and he just couldn't believe that journalists hadn't turned up to tell this story, that national, there was no national interest in it. And that's what perked our interest. We, we run a 501c3. It's a charity, and it's called the Unreported Story Society. And this was an unreported story. And so we've been reporting on it ever since. And as you know, have just released a six-part true crime podcast telling the story, talking to all of the people involved, the prosecutors, the the, the cops, but most significantly speaking to Kermit Gosnell himself behind bars. He's serving three life sentences for what he did. Now, I remember that trial very, very clearly because I work in the pro-life movement. And so I was following this story and, and Kermit Gosnell was only one of a number of abortionists that we knew who were up to this sort of behavior. And there was almost nobody covering it. You folks were just a couple of a handful. So what finally forced the media to actually cover the Gosnell story? It was very interesting, actually, and we, we wrote about this in the book. That we, we also wrote a book about, about Gosnell, and, you know, there's a whole chapter about the media. And, and what really happened was, and it was it kind of, I don't know if it's true, but it might be the first time that social media forced, shame-forced the media into covering a story. So you had people like Molly Hemingway, from, who was writing for, a, for a, a blog called Get Religion at the time. She's obviously with the Federalist now. But Molly Hemingway, also another journalist, a local journalist in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia called J.D. Mullane, 
you know, they're just two names, but there were a number of people like yourself, by the way, like pro-life activists around the country, but kind of big names like Molly Hemingway, particularly her, she started writing, she did a very specific thing. She started writing to journalists in the Washington Post, the New York Times, et cetera, slate and saying, what's going on? Why are you not covering this extraordinary case? And very specifically, she wrote to Sarah Cliff. She wrote to Sarah Cliff at the Washington Post. And Sarah Cliff famously wrote back and said, we don't cover local news. You know, that's like saying Trayvon Martin was a local news story or George Floyd was a local news story. Because, I mean, obviously on one level they are. So by the weekend, I mean, this happened on like a Thursday. And by the weekend, over the weekend, by the time the Monday turned around, the Washington Post actually, the editor actually apologized and said, of course, they should be covering the case. But really, I think Molly Hemingway was very significant. The other name I mentioned was J.D. Mullane. J.D. Mullane went to the courthouse many, many times. And in fact, famously, on one occasion, he risked putting himself in prison by taking a photograph of the empty press benches inside the courtroom. And that photograph, he tweeted that photograph out, and it went viral. It kind of went around the world. You know, this is this extraordinary court case and journalists are not turning up. And he, sh he shamed them as well. So I think for me, those two names are the very significant two journalists who forced mainstream media to acknowledge the case, at, at least acknowledge the case. I mean, if you were to go back and look at the coverage from the Washington Post or the New York Times, it's, you know, it's, it's scant. They can certainly say they covered it. But they didn't cover it like they covered, you know, George Floyd or, as I said, Trayvon Martin or any of these other cases. You know, they, you know, they, they make they make very specific decisions about what they really want to cover. And when I say cover, you're talking about wall to wall coverage. They didn't do wall to wall coverage of this case, even though this case had significance in every possible way. It had something to say about public policy. Obviously, the murders are horrific in themselves. But, you know, it had something to say about the way abortion is treated by the authorities in states that are very progressive. You know, Pennsylvania is very, very progressive. They had laws in place to protect women, to protect, protect children. They had those laws in place, but those laws were ignored. They were ignored by everyone in the Department of State and the Department of Health in Pennsylvania, who for 17 years, 17 years, didn't inspect the clinic, even though two women died there. These are huge questions that should have stopped every journalist in their tracks. And then, obviously, the gruesome nature of what happened, the fact that this man was delivering babies alive, his modus operandi was to deliver, his ba to deliver babies alive and then to cut their necks with scissors, and he did this for decades. You know, he's in prison for, for murdering three babies, but the truth is that the, the grand jury said that, you know, for sure he killed hundreds, if not thousands, in the same way. And so that's what gives him, you know, the title of America's biggest serial killer, but the America's biggest serial killer who most, most people still haven't heard of. Even when the coverage of this began, it wasn't really overwhelming. I was in Philadelphia for the closing arguments of the trial, and, and the courtroom wasn't particularly packed. There was a handful of journalists there. There were some pro-life activists there. And, you know, it was a local story, but the crazy thing about Gosnell is that everybody kind of knew what he was all about. I went down to, to Gosnell's clinic there and just to kind of, you know, gawk and take a look at it. And you'll probably remember somebody had fastened all of these these clay baby hands to the windowsills that had been snapped off at the wrist. 
and people had written all these things on the bricks of the clinic and everything inside was trashed. And I asked a couple of people who were walking by if they knew, you know, what, what, what kind of building this was. And they all knew it was an abortion clinic. One woman's like, yeah, no, I had an abortion there myself. Horrible experience described women being herded into the waiting room, like cattle, like, you know, this is just well, the fourth person I asked, you know, you know, what's, what goes on here. And, and she was telling these just grotesque stories that didn't touch on, on the murders that your podcast and the, and your book describes, but, but still were pretty terrifying. So as this trial wrapped up, what made you decide to start telling the story multiple ways? Cause you've been involved with now, this is your third major, major attempt to tell the story, correct? You've got the book and then there was the movie that came out with the screenplay by Andrew Clavin. And then on top of that, now you've got this very brilliant six part podcast that I really encourage everyone to listen to. Thank you. And I just to tell people where to go, they can, they can listen to the podcast at serialkillerpod.com serialkillerpod.com and leave a review because actually it's interesting obviously we've got we've got fabulous reviews but we also have people who've who've listened to all six episodes and then thought oh i don't like this pro-life message at the end of the, of the of, and, and they're like writing this kind of negative stuff and giving us bad reviews to try and make our you know to get our ratings down because actually we were in the top 10 of all true crime podcasts around the world that's how that's how popular the the podcast is you know we we decided to do this story and to do it in multiple ways exactly as you say to reach audiences that haven't heard before i ever got involved in this story i would have described myself as as you know neutral on abortion and i can translate that for anyone who needs a translation neutral abortion is pro abortion there's no neutrality when it comes to this issue so that's who i was until i heard what happened in the courtroom and what was what was very impressive and important about the courtroom is that in a courtroom you can't make a political speech you're not there's no room for that you're asked questions you answer with a yes or a no you describe things as they're asked for not anything else you're not allowed do any kind of you know you can't so pro-lifers couldn't you know make some kind of speech about the value of life that's not allowed and and, and i agree with it by the way so one, one of the things they needed to do during the trial was they had to help the jury distinguish between what is legal in an abortion and what is murder. And I can tell you that that part of the testimony was what got me to where I am today. Having now made, as you say, a movie, written a book and have this podcast. We also had a play, actually, by the way, with transcripts reenacted in New York. That's what had me do it, because basically you had... These legal abortion doctors, two of them, who were asked under oath to describe an abortion when it's being done properly. And I can tell you that the jury were shocked and said that they were shocked. It was one of the most shocking moments of all the testimony they ever heard. It was like, really? You can do that? That's legal? And I think this is one of the services that this story you know, provides is an education to people. I mean, you know, don't be pro-life or pro-abortion and not know what you're talking about. It's good to know exactly what we're dealing with, how this is done, when it's done legally, what's allowed in America. You know, I remember a friend of mine, I mean, it's a kind of an amazing story, a friend of mine, he's a highly qualified doctor and anesthesiologist in Ireland. Very, very qualified. He worked at the Mayo Clinic. I mean, really, you know, top notch. And he watched our movie, and I remember hearing him, overhearing him tell another friend of mine, oh, my God, do you know that it's like what they do when they put down a dog? And he started describing it like, like in complete shock. And I'm thinking, you're an, you're an anesthesiologist. What, you didn't know about this? You know, if he didn't know about this, and he's, a, as I said, a very smart guy, no one knows about this. People don't know about this. They don't know 
that an injection of poison, when it's done properly, an injection of poison is put into the heart of the living baby and the baby dies slowly. It doesn't die even immediately, the baby. It's not, it doesn't even die immediately. It could go on for a day, breathing in pain. And then eventually it dies and then it's pulled out in bits. And that's when it's done well. That's when it's done properly. So people need to know that and ask themselves, is that, are, you, are you good with that? I mean, I'm always, I always make the point, you know, the people, and if you look at the internet, you know, and obviously we're all spending all our time looking at phones and looking at videos. And, you know, people love watching at videos of kittens and of puppies. And I'm right in there with you, whoever you are listening to this, who knows what I'm talking about. You know, we love that. And we, you know, you're, I mean, when I read a story, a news story where there's been an, something happened and the dog was shot, I'm like, I can't even read it. Right. And I think I am with a lot of people on that. And if you can break your heart over a dog getting hurt or a puppy or a little kitten, I don't know where your heart is that you don't have a problem with a baby imprisoned in a way inside the womb who is dying of being slowly poisoned. And that's legal and extremely legal. And of course, extremely legal in Canada, extremely legal in the United States. Unfortunately, those two countries have that extraordinary distinction of having abortion right up until birth only can be compared to horror shows like North Korea and China. It's a, a crazy club to be in. That's why I've kept on doing this. People don't know. And with this podcast, and I really would ask people to go to serialkillerpod.com, listen to one episode, I challenge you to not be able to listen to all the rest, and then do me a really big favor, and this would be the biggest favor ever. Share it with that young person in your life. You would be surprised so young people, particularly sort of millennials, they listen to true crime. It's something that they listen to. So they're really used to the genre. They're really used to listen to, you know, cops talking about what they saw when they came on the scene of a crime. They're used to that. And that's exactly what they'll get in this podcast. The only difference is it's covering a crime that the mainstream media chose not to cover. It's covering this story that I think is extremely important. I mean, one of the things you talked about standing outside of the clinic so we were recording recently, obviously, for this podcast you know, a couple of months ago outside the clinic. And we were there actually with Christine Wexler, the, one of the assistant district attorneys. And, and she said, oh, that, I think that door is open. And the door was open. We, and now Christine Wexler is a, you know, an officer of the, of the court, so she did not go in. But we went in and went through the clinic. And one of the really disturbing things, extremely disturbing, and I describe it at the end of, of episode six, and it's, I actually, my voice breaks up describing it, is at the back of the clinic, there, there for all the world to see are tens of thousands of files of the, of, the, of the women who went in there for abortions. And they have been left there by the Department of State, the Department of Health in Pennsylvania, who couldn't give a damn, sorry to use that phrase, who just don't care. That's women's information, their private information, their telephone numbers, their addresses, how many abortions they've had. All that information is there for any vagrant to walk in and walk out with that personal information. And the Department of Health in Pennsylvania just don't care. They just don't care. They still don't care. So who knows where this kind of crazy stuff is going on if they still don't care in Pennsylvania after everything that's been discovered. And I said at the end of that podcast, what is extraordinary is that those tens of thousands of files represent tens of thousands of children that the world will never get to know. And who were all those lovely people? Who were those people 
who we need in the world, by the way, the population of the world is in a complete decline. It's a complete demographic disaster. We could do with those lovely people being alive. And, and I think listening to this podcast and listening to go, going to serialkillerpod.com, listening and sharing, leaving a great review would really help. And it's a memorial to these forget, forgotten lives because so many people you know, don't know about them. But I'll tell you one thing, we're not going to forget them. And we're not going to forget baby boy A, who shared a birthday with my own father, the 12th of July, who lived and died on that day and who already in his short life has saved other lives. And we know this because people have told us that they changed their mind about abortion because of finding out this story. So, uh, so that's what it's all about. That's why we're doing it. So before I get into a couple of questions about how you made it, and you filled in some of the details, but just because I do want people to go and listen to this podcast, maybe just give them a, a quick summary of the Gosnell story, which you kick off with right on episode one, where you talk about how he was involved in drug trafficking. He was involved in all sorts of nefarious things, butchering women, essentially, and and and, and not getting inspected. That Essentially, he was sort of, he was a back alley butcher, but operating legally, and, and the law just didn't seem to care about him. So just maybe maybe give your your, your summary of the Kermit Gosnell story to, to to lure people over to the podcast. On top of doing what we've learned, what we subsequently learned, he was our, he was one of the biggest opioid suppliers in the whole of Philadelphia and the whole of Pennsylvania, actually. So what he was doing was he was he was writing fake prescriptions for opioids and selling those fake prescriptions to drug dealers, and that's how he came to the attention of. Detective Jim Wood, who was an undercover investigation. And through that investigation, he started to hear disturbing stories. And he heard particularly about the death of an, of a, of a, an, of an immigrant, Karnamaya Monger, a Bhutanese refugee who had spent 20 years in a refugee camp in Nepal, had arrived in America and was dead four months later after a botched abortion at Kermit Gosnell's clinic. So this really, I don't know, it, it, something happened. Jim, Jim just couldn't stop thinking about what happened to this woman. He was really surprised to find out there wasn't a police report about her death. And so he started to investigate that, even though it was outside of his purview. It wasn't part of what he was supposed to be doing. And he got a search warrant to go into the premises. He got the search warrant for the drug investigation. But he also managed to get a search warrant to look for evidence of uh, malfeasance in, in, in what happened to to Karnamaya Monger. And there was a raid and the night of the raid, like they had, you know, they had people from the FBI, from the drug administration, from the DEA, the, the drug people, they had people from the Philadelphia Police Department, all coalesced around the clinic and went in together. And the, the descriptions, you know, and you get that in the podcast, you'll hear that, the descriptions by those uh, law enforcement officers of what they experienced that night when they went in is really, really shocking. You know, they said that there was like, the smell was the first thing that hit them. And they knew because these are guys who, the, some of these were homicide detectives, and they knew it was the smell of death. And of course, we know then later that they discovered these dead bodies in the basement. And they discovered, you know, severed feet in jars. And, you know, that's kind of how it all started. They go in and they've, they've just, it's a horror show. The place is disgusting. There are cats walking around. There's feces. It's just, you know, cat feces, but also human remain, you know, human excrement where people, where the toilets were blocked up because he was putting babies down the toilets, basically, and baby parts down the toilets. And we we hear in the podcast from the janitor who worked there, Jimmy Johnson, we have an actor who reenacts his testimony. Jimmy Johnson is actually dead. 
but reenacts his testimony of what it was like clearing the toilets. And, you know, the idea, again, as I said before, the idea that this wasn't something that was newsworthy is just beyond, beyond belief. But that's how the whole thing started, you know, and they started to, you know, when they went into the clinic, they isolated the different people who worked there, put them all in separate rooms and started to interrogate them and started to hear really disturbing stories of how, what had been going on in that clinic, how he was operating, what he was doing. And that was, uh, you know, as they, as they all say, it was a life-changing event. And you hear some of them, Steve Dockerty, one of the crime scene investigators who basically, you know, said he had to have, you know, he needed help after a certain amount of time, after months into the investigation, he needed help dealing with his emotions, dealing with the fact that he couldn't sleep because of what he had experienced. And you hear, you know, you get to hear the voices. I think it's kind of the missing piece. You get to hear the voices of the people who were there. You also hear people like Adrian Moulton, one of the workers in the clinic. I mean, extraordinary to hear her voice. You hear m me talking to her on the phone, asking her about the death of baby boy A and that he had such an impact on her that she took a photograph and she, and she talks about that, about the photograph that she took and kept on a phone. And when the cops eventually caught up with her, you know, she handed them the phone. It had to be sent to Quantico to retrieve the photograph. And that photograph's on the internet. That photograph, people can find that. Don't, if you go and look at it, don't expect to be able to forget it in a hurry, baby boy. Eh? I mean, you know, it's a huge story. It's a massive story. And I think by doing the six episodes, we, we cover all the bases. And I think, I think you'll never regret spending the time listening and you'll never regret sharing it. What was it like for you to personally both speak with and then talk to Dr. Kermit Gosnell, knowing what he had done and, and what he was so unrepentant about? He has a very specific affect. I mean, he's, he, he behaves, when I went and met him in prison, you know, he, he behaves like somebody who had just come in from playing golf. He has this uh, light uh, airiness to him and he has a soft voice. He smiles all the time. You know, he's deeply disturbing to spend time with. And I was with him for three hours in the prison, three hours too long, you know, but that's the job. And I was and I was privileged to get to do it, actually, by the way. And I, I, I'm not looking for sympathy. I, I wanted to I wanted to be there. It's extraordinary to hear him and and to see how manipulative he is and how he you know, tries to, you know, cover things up. He has an answer to everything. And then when he doesn't have an answer to anything, to something, you know, he dropped, you, you know, every now and again, he would drop his head and say, oh, you know about that. And then, you know, anything I asked him, which he didn't want to answer, he would say, well, it's too complicated for you to understand, you know. He would do that often, you know, you're not a doctor, so you really wouldn't understand my methodology. But he's, I mean, he's deeply creepy, deeply disturbing, you know, and he thinks he's going to get out. I mean, he, you know, he, he, you know, he has this bizarre thought that he's going to get out, that he'll be vindicated eventually. And I suppose one, one, as a, you know, I know your, your audience are pro-lifers and as, as, you know, I can imagine they, you know, worry, by the way, that maybe he's right, that maybe some of these laws that are being enacted around the country, these crazy laws, which are nearly, you know, as I said, abortion up till birth. And, you know, they're even talking past that. You know, they almost talk about infanticide being legalized in certain places, you know, and they talk about comfort care. I mean, they talked about comfort care in the United States of America. And one of the doctors, in fact, during the Kermit Gosnell trial, talked about what they called comfort care, you know, where they were asked what would happen if a baby was born alive, you know, during an abortion. You know, what what do you do? Oh, well, you know, basically neglect it to death. Now, that's not the quote that we got from the courtroom. Basically, in the courtroom, the abortion doctor said, well, you know, as a human being, you'd like to keep it warm. Eventually, it'll pass. In other words, don't intervene. Don't help the baby. Don't, you know, use any medical 
interventions to 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 make the to keep the child alive extraordinary and that's that's the world we're living in so you know maybe he hasn't maybe he's right in, in, in thinking that one day he might get out i certainly hope he won't i mean he was he was very disturbing at one point showing me his hands he's obsessed with his feet and his hands he thinks he has really big feet and he talks a lot about his feet and of course as we know he cut the feet off the babies and kept them in jars so you know that obsession is mirrored in part of you know the appalling treatment he he had meted out on these unfortunate victims do you think that Dr. Kermit Gosnell is an anomaly in the American abortion industry? I have no reason to think he's not. And the reason I say that, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is so here's Pennsylvania, very progressive Pennsylvania, with all kinds of laws, all kinds of regulations. And it's progressive. I mean, they love being how much how progressive they are, you know, and they care. They care about everything. They care apparently about refugees, they care about minorities. Well, I've news for all you progressives out there, you know, this is the treatment that a refugee got in progressive Pennsylvania. This is the treatment that an African-American mother, Samika Shaw, got in progressive Pennsylvania. Both of those women died and no one from the Department of Health and the Department of State thought it was worthwhile investigating or bothering to walk across the threshold of 3801 Lancaster to, to see what was going on. And if they had, of course, they'd have seen, you know, the crazy world that there was there, the cats walking around, the blood stains, and women screaming. I've, I've interviewed women who, talk, who said it was amazing nobody ever reported them. The screams could be heard down the street. Why would we for a second presume that in other progressive places like California, like New York, like Illinois, New Jersey, why would we presume for a second that this isn't happening? Why? You know, just logically, like logically, why would it not be happening? If it can happen in Pennsylvania and did happen in Pennsylvania for decades, why oh why oh why would, would any normal rational person think it's not happening in New York? I think I, I, he's not an, I, I would, I think it really defies logic to imagine that he's an anomaly because abortion is such a sacred thing to progressives that they would do anything, and I mean anything, to protect it. And the reason I say that is because I know that, because it happened in this case. It's such a chilling and difficult story in a lot of ways. And I wonder, though, since 2013 was when he was convicted and sentenced. And so you've been dedicated to the story for, for almost nine years. What is it about this story that's kept your attention for, for nearly a decade, because you're a journalist who's covered all sorts of different stories. You know, you can probably hear it in my voice. I'm still shocked by this story. I'm actually genuinely shocked by this story. I continue to be dumbfounded and aghast at what happened with the Department of Health in Pennsylvania. I am, I'm beyond, I cannot understand it. My, I have family members, a lot of my family are in the medical, in the medical world, a lot of doctors in our family. I, I know exactly what kind of people they are and how they care. And we have nurses in the family. I mean, I, I know these people. I know them really well. So I don't know what kind of people work in the Department of Health in Harrisburg. I cannot, I cannot understand them because they don't care about human life. They don't care at all. They just don't care. They didn't care that two women died. They didn't care. They couldn't get in their cars. These are people who are really well paid. They have pensionable jobs. And they, all they're asked to do is to protect the health of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And they, they just didn't care. And I don't, I have no, why would I think that, that anything has changed? I have no evidence to tell me that anything has changed. And that's, 
you know, that for me is, a, is extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary, and fr it's very frightening, by the way, that we're living in a world like that, where, where ideology, you know, trumps everything, where these, you know, ideologues, these abortion ideologues would literally do anything, anything to protect abortion. They would do anything. And they did do everything to protect Kermit Gosnell. They did everything to protect him. You know, there's, we have a funny scene in the movie and it was based on, on, on all of the evidence. There were constant complaints about Kermit Gosnell, constant. There are requirements for abortion clinics to report on the abortions that they do. It's a routine thing. You've got to send in who, you know, who, who, what abortions did you do, what age, what gestational age were the babies. All of that has to be done. That wasn't done by Gosnell and no one in Harrisburg cared. No one followed up. No one said, you're going to close your doors if you don't send the reports in. They didn't do anything. They just didn't do anything. And, you know, these are the same people, by the way, who closed down nail salons because they find some dust. And the, the grand jury in the Kermit Gosnell case pointed that out very clearly. The grand jury were appalled by these people who, you know, showed such little regard for human life, such little regard, as I said, for minorities and for refugees, the exact population that progressives say they care about. They don't care at all, not at all. They only care about abortion and they care about abortion up till birth and beyond. And they'll do anything to protect it. And I mean anything. And I think that's why this story has to be told and retold and retold. And I'm going to keep doing it. And this podcast, what's great about it is it's free to listen to. It's there forever. It'll never go away. And I just hope loads and loads of people listen to it, share it. People can listen to it all around the world. We're getting lovely letters from people all over the place who are listening to it. And as I said, we have these people who are in trying to destroy it by giving us negative reviews. But, it, but what's really interesting and People can go online, they can read the reviews, and it's kind of interesting that the people who are really negative, really angry, have listened to all six episodes. And I'm thinking, you know, and then they, they, then they say it's terrible, but they listen to six episodes of something terrible. Normally you wouldn't do that, right? But they listen to it, and then they hate what they've learned. They hate it, and they're angry. And so they're reacting, you know. But I think what's marvelous is you cannot unhear what you've heard. You cannot unlearn. You can't unsee what your mind has let you see through listening to this podcast. So I would really urge people to go, as I said, SerialKillerPod.com, SerialKillerPod.com. It's, it's everywhere where, where you get podcasts. You can also just type into your podcast app. You can just type in Serial Killer, a true crime podcast, Serial Killer, a true crime podcast. And that would be really helpful. And as I said, please do share it, though, with other people. Final question here. So I, I was in Ireland for the 2018 abortion referendum, and I actually wrote a book about the history of the Irish pro-life movement culminating with the campaign to save the eighth in 2018. What was it like for you to watch Ireland and then Northern Ireland make the same mistake that had led to the abortion regime that produced Kermit Gosnell? It's very, very disturbing. And I feel like Ireland is, is lost and it's an unrecognizable country to me. Unfortunately, it's not the country I was brought up in. I'm deeply disturbed by it. But again, I, you know, again, what happened in Ireland was there was a debate, you know, there was a debate, you know, inverted commas, that didn't, that didn't include a description of abortion. So, you know, that was the one thing that they left out, you know, that, you know, they wouldn't allow it on the, on the mainstream media. They would not allow an actual there was no real debate. They wouldn't allow pro-lifers get to say the things they wanted to say. They, you know, there was, there was, it was, a, a, you know, almost a misinformation campaign, you know, that, that they, they just wouldn't allow it. So I think, I think people made a decision 
based on a complete lack of knowledge. I remember, funny enough, just a, a funny you know, incidents. I remember being invited to a party in Rosslare after the after the decision, after the referendum, and you know, it was a you know whatever a very sophisticated party. I, I I remember saying to my husband, I don't think there's anyone here except for us who doesn't have two doctorates. You know, there's that kind of group. You know, and I remember speaking to a woman and she was asking about the referendum, and I I said. I said, it's a, well, I said, what I think is awful is that they never described an abortion, you know, that no one ever, no one in Ireland knew what they were voting for. And, you know, they didn't describe an abortion. And she said, but sure, why, why would you want to know? Why would we need that? And I thought, OK, that's everything you need to know. And you'd need to be very, very sophisticated to come out with something as stupid as that. Only somebody with two doctorates could say something quite as stupid as that. You know, we could vote on something without knowing what it is. And, you know, she was like completely soberly saying this. And I'm thinking that's exactly what's wrong. I'd like to think and I'm sure and I, I have so many beautiful friends in Ireland in the pro-life movement, people that I like, they're like they're like family to me now <laughs> that, uh, you know, and I, I know it's very tough on them, but they're going to keep on fighting. And, you know, I, I, it, the strangest things can happen. Roe v. Wade, you know, Roe, Roe has, was overturned in the United States. It's extraordinary. You know, we people used to say, would it happen in our lifetime? People, you know, is this kind of like in our lifetime? Well, it's happened, you know. So, you know, incredible things can happen. Good things can happen. But people have to fight very hard. And changing people's hearts is as important, more important than changing legislation. It's more important than changing legislation. Changing people's hearts, making abortion unthinkable is very, very important. And you can't do that unless you tell people what abortion is. So that's kind of one of the functions of this podcast and one of the functions of what we're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. No, this is great, Jonathan. Thank you very much. And just to, again, to remind people, it's SerialKillerPod.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation on Dr. Kermit Gosnell, America's most prolific, but unfortunately not most notorious, serial killer. There's the book Gosnell, which I highly recommend. Now there is a crime podcast. Those of you who like this sort of thing or are interested in this sort of thing, please do consider listening to it. Those of you who just want to know what America's abortion regime is all about, do give it a listen. If you've got pro-choice friends, send them the podcast so that they hopefully will be drawn in by the story and then hit by the realization that abortion is the destruction of living human beings, perfectly created human beings. If you want to check out past shows and subscribe to future shows, head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab. You'll be able to find the Van Maren Show and all of our episodes there. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We do hope you'll join us again next week.